It is always a joy to be with you guys here at uh, Phoenix Bible Church, and I love it. Uh, when Tim called, it was like it says in the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to PBC. So you can look that up later. That's a little perversion of a psalm. But anyway, it has been fun for me and a joy for me, literally, to be a part of this with you guys almost since day one. Uh, you know, when I first met with Tim and, and heard his heart, you know, for church planning and just for the direction and one way or another being a part of this fellowship has been a joy, just a joy. And over four years, you guys have been in the race. You've been doing great. But I want to ask you a question, both personally and as a church. And you don't have to answer out loud to this. You don't have to raise your hand. Just internally, have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like this is just too hard? You ever felt like, I, I just, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I'm beat down, I just can't put another foot in front of me, and, and I just don't know if I'm going to be able to keep on going. Well, John did. Not John, who's a part of this fellowship, because I don't know, I don't think a John that's a part of this fellowship, although you probably is. But John felt that way, literally, not metaphorically. It was in 1968, and he lined up with 74 other runners in uh, the Olympics in Mexico City. John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania uh, lined up and, and was gonna run this marathon. Now, I know all of us know a marathon's a long way, right? You know exactly how long it is? 26.2 miles. Now, let me set that stage for you. That's like if you were to go out these doors and started running, you would end up in Anthem. That's not just a long way. That's like a really long way, right? And so these guys train for this and train for this and train for this. And you could say they are truly long distance runners. But he is not known for having won that race. Matter of fact, he's known for having come in last. Over an hour after the race had been decided, all the medals had been determined as to who was going to get what. And most of the spectators had left that part. Other people around at different events start hearing a crowd cheering. And the cheering gets louder and the cheering gets louder and the cheering gets louder. And John Stephen Okori is dragging himself, limping across the finish line. And he finished 57th. But 57th. Notice I said there were 74 other. There were 75 that started the race. He was the last one to finish it but he was, many others didn't even finish it. When asked afterwards what had happened, and he didn't throw anybody into the bus, but he had evidently been cut off. He had fallen. He had taken a bad spill. He was injured, not just tired, but he continued to run and continued to run long after the outcome of the race had been established. And when a sports commentator asked him later on why he didn't quit, he said these words, my country did not send me 9,000 miles to start the race but to finish it. My country, Tanzania, East Africa, did not send me 9,000 miles to Mexico City to start the race, but to finish it. Think about that. You know, and oftentimes throughout the scripture, the, the life that we live is really compared to a race or some other athletic event. And uh, the reality is we all get tired. We all get weary. We all want to quit. It's not just about starting. It's about how do we finish. You know, all the marriages that start, for every two marriage licenses that are issued, 
there's also a divorce decree that comes down. Now, I'm not saying 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Hear what I said carefully. For every two licenses that are established for marriage, there is also a divorce in the same calendar year. And that doesn't even count the relationships that start out in a live-in type of situation and they don't make it to two or three or four years. This is a situation where marriage is hard. It's tough. It's worth it, but it is hard. And not everybody's going to stay in the game. There's alarming numbers of children who grow up in Christian homes. We see this. It's almost epidemic proportion that these children who start out in church, start out in our youth group, start out in our nurseries, they end up walking away from the faith. Now, that's always been the case where there's a time where they walk away, but increasingly, more of them are not coming back. Why is that? It's hard. If anybody tells you as a follower of Jesus that your life is going to be easy from here on, they're lying to you. It's tough, and we don't want to put that mind in our children's perspective either. It's alarming how many people in recovery ministries end up relapsing. Now, to a large degree, that's to be expected to some degree or another. And God doesn't give up on us, neither should we. But relapse is oftentimes a part of recovery ministry, and many don't make it at all. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with people who end up dying as a result of their addiction. Because they got the help, they got the help, they got the help, but they didn't follow through. How many people start out excited about their relationship with Christ? You know, they're so stoked and they they get baptized and they get involved in a discipleship group and they're so excited and they tell all their friends about this new faith that they have in Jesus. But then it gets tough and things don't work out the way they thought they were going to work out. And now they struggle and sometimes stop pursuing that relationship with Christ that seemed to have so much promise in the beginning. If that's true of people in churches it should stand as no surprise then that it's also true of pastors. 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. Now that's horrible. I don't believe that's true of Phoenix Seminary and other good seminaries. I think though that nationwide, this is a statistic that's given, only one out of every 10 ministers actually retire in some form of ministry according to Pastoral Care Inc. in 2017 as cited by Fuller Institute and Barna's resource. 50% of ministers, only one will last five years and only one. See, put that in perspective. You guys are about four years old. One more year that's saying, Tim, Tim just says, I'm done, I'm through, I'm finished. I'm not saying that and I don't have the gift of prophecy, okay? <laughs> so I don't project that at all. I see a long and healthy relationship, but just to set it in context, That would be like that person saying, no, I can't do this anymore. Um, One out of 10, only one out of 10 will retire in some form of ministry. Why? Because it's dang hard. And not too many people have that. So, you know, today we're going to read from a letter. It's just a few verses, but they're packed. And then I'm going to chase you all around the scriptures, looking at some other things. But it's in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people, and nobody really knows who the author is. Tim might, but I don't. 
nor do most commentators, know really definitively who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's all kinds of conjecture. But what we do know is it was written to a group of people who came to faith in Jesus. They were so excited. They were so positive. We found the Messiah. He's the one. We're going to follow him. He's raised from the dead. He died on the cross for our sins. All that stuff they bought into. And he's coming back, but he hasn't come back yet. And now years have gone on it, and years have gone on it, and years have gone on it. He hadn't come back yet. And so some of them are starting to say, did we buy a bill of goods here? Are we smoking something we shouldn't have been smoking? You know, is this something that we just bought into and it's, we want to go back to our old way of living. And so the book of Hebrews is written to convince Jewish believers of the superiority of Jesus Christ the superiority to the angels, to the sacrificial system, to the priesthood, to all the stuff that's gone before. And now we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and I just want to read it for you. Listen up. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the word of God. Now, let's unpack that a little bit as we look at this. I think one of the things that this is saying is this, even though it's hard, even though it's hard to continue to follow Christ, we can run with endurance and finish strong. We can run well. And we can finish strong. So it's not just something that's an unattainable ideal that's out here. It's something that can be done. And many have done it before us. Now there's three things I want to look at this. It says run the race with endurance that's set before us. And notice he's talking life and race. And Paul uses all kinds of metaphors, especially athletic metaphors. And a lot of times he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I don't box in such a way as beating the air. I want my blows to land. He had in his mind the Greco-Roman athleticism that our culture understands as well. He used this. Well, when he uses the word race here in Hebrews, he uses a Greek word, not Paul, but whoever the author is, uses a, a word that is agon. Agon sounds similarly to the English word agonizing. There is a problem. There is a struggle. There is difficulty. It, it take, it's their stress. And he's saying that's like life. Life is like a race and it's not just a sprint for most of us. It's a marathon. It's grueling. It's enduring. It is agon. It's agonizing. And we need to do that. Now how do we do it? <clears throat> He says, we need to run it with endurance. Here's what the word endurance means. It's a determination to keep going. It means continuing even when everything within you wants to slow down or give up. Well, if that's possible, and we know that it's a reality, how is it that we're supposed to run this race with endurance, like the author to Hebrews tells us we can do? Well, <clears throat> we look at this, and there's Several things. There's three things. Any good sermon is going to have three points, right? Well, I got three points, and the third point has three points, so you are so blessed today, okay? And we might get in time for the NFL season to start in August. The first is you can run with endurance by remembering it can be done. 
You notice the first thing it says in the very first part of verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, a lot of times people use this passage and say, there, the people have gone, they're cheering for you. They see what's going on and they're cheering for you and they're praying for you. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a good thought. But I think more likely he's looking back to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, if you've ever read that, is a whole list of people who are living by faith or who have lived by faith and now are with the Lord. Some of them died as martyrs, but they still didn't give up. They didn't quit. They kept the faith. I think he's talking about Hebrews 11 and all the men and women that are listed there. And he's saying, remember, it can be done. Think about this. Look at all the men and women who trusted God, who operated on his promise, who, who reached out for something that was uncommon from Abraham through all the ones that were after that. And they lived for Christ. They followed God through all of this stuff. It can be done. And he points them to the heroes of the faith, what I would call God's hall of faith. I want to introduce you to some of my heroes. Juma is one that I met in Congo two years ago. Juma is actually Ugandan, but he was guiding our trip with Stephen Celeste Tracy and mending the soul into Congo to work with horribly abused men and women. I don't know if you know it, but East Congo was determined by the UN to be the rape epicenter of the world. And it's not a sexual thing as much as it is a power and domination and, and control issue that's there. And so we were going in to teach men and women, how do you survive in a culture like that? And how do you help others that are present? So it was training. Well, Jim is a man that I met there and Juma's story is this. He grew up in a household. His mother and fa his father was polygamist, not a believer, had multiple wives. And uh, he was born to this one wife who had then had to leave for her own safety to go back to her tribe in Kenya. But she couldn't take her son with her. He was given over to the care of his stepmother. And his stepmother resented him, did not want him to be there. So he got kicked from hut to hut to hut, from stepmother to stepmother. And in one case, when he finally left home, it was because his stepmother tried to poison him like you would a stray dog. He didn't believe it until the dog ate the rice that was in his bowl that his stepbrother had kicked out of his hand and the dog died. He went to his father and said, this woman, this wife of yours tried to kill me. You know what his father's response was? You should have died. You're in a lot of trouble. How would you like to grow up in a household like that? Well, he left home because he said even at 11, he knew life was safer for him on the streets than it was in home. But God hadn't forgotten him. Even while he was on the streets trying to make his own way, he came past a place of worship and he heard music and he went in and a kindly pastor and his wife took him in, got him back enrolled in school, began to feed him, began to care for him. He came to faith in Jesus the guy was sharp beyond sharp and became, went on to university on a, on a scholarship and became the student body president of the largest university in East Africa. And now he leads a ministry of caring for children, training people how to care for children, including the Watoto Children's Ministry that I was a part of when my wife and I would go. Incredible things in Juma. Juma's one of my, my heroes. Tom's one of my heroes. Tom is a guy that I met at Desert Springs years ago, ran a car wash, and, uh, and then Tom went blind. But that has not deterred Tom. He continues to lead good news clubs in the Palomino community just west of Desert Springs Bible Church. 
and seeing children come to faith in Jesus as a result. He has not argued for his limitations. He's continued to represent Jesus. I think of Jan, who I just got an email and text from the other day, who's had polio since the time she was a small girl. She's never been married. She's never had kids. But that didn't stop her from reaching out to others. She got heavily involved in young life in Texas, where she was living at the time. And she has so many young women and men who are her children spiritually because of her mentoring. And right now, she is a foster parent for three children whose mother have a significant drug problem and can't care for them. And she turns 80 this year, as in a wheelchair, has crutches, not just crutches, but, but braces on her legs. Jan's one of my heroes. Malcolm Cronk's one of my heroes. He's a pastor I worked with at Camelback Bible Church before I went to Desert Springs. And he mentored me in his own way. And it was hard for me to leave there when the call came to go to Desert Springs. And I love this man so much so that Emily and I went to Illinois where he was living at the time to be there for his 100th birthday. The guy preached till in his early 90s. Now he retired from that church, but he continued to preach in little places, any place that would have him. He told me, he said, I sort of feel like I'm coming back full circle to the places that I started preaching in. Supply preaching and preaching with places that don't have a pastor or little groups of people. And then here's one who had spoken to thousands and yet he delivered well into his 90s because of the joy of the Lord and the knowledge of his word. He's one of my heroes. And I got to tell you, when I see people like that, I say, it can be done. It can be done. Who am I to whine about where I am and difficult and hard? Nah, 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 nah. It's like, Rick, shut up. I know there's kids in the room, so I'm sorry for that. <clears throat> but anyway, let's not argue for our limitations. These are heroes. We need to remember it can be done. Second thing we need to know is in the second part of verse 1, it says, and laying aside every weight and the sin which so clings to us so closely. We run with the endurance by remembering it be done and removing any weight or any sin that trips us up. Well, basically, that's removing anything that holds us back. Uh, if you look at the every weight, this can be a, even a good thing. Uh, when I stepped down from the senior leadership role at Desert Springs four years ago, it was not because I, I wanted to play more golf and I wanted to hunt and fish more and I wanted to just kick back and eat bonbons and all that stuff. I told them, I said, this is not retirement. It is a strategic redeployment of my time and energy into younger men and women. And that's what allows me to have the time to be able to come here and to be at New City next week and to invest in the Big C Church, just like Pastor Tim's doing today. I love that. My wife said the other day, this is a great season of life, great season of ministry. I couldn't be doing this, though, if I were still in a senior pastor's role. I had to say no to that, to say yes to what I think God's call is strategically for the next 10 or 15 years, however many years God gives me of health and energy and opportunity, that's what I want to be about. I was listening to a message by Alistair Begg and a Scottish pastor in the Midwest and love listening to him. Emily and I have been listening to podcasts when we've been driving around different places. We were introduced to him a few years ago. He was talking about being at, a, uh, I think again in East Africa and he had the opportunity to tour some an airstrip that had missions planes there and he went and saw these planes he said man they were like state-of-the-art planes like you'd see in any private airfield around the states but when we looked inside of them they were stripped they had canvas seats not plush seats 
They had restraints that would keep you in, but the, the, the lining was stripped out. The flooring was stripped out. It was just the bare essentials. Why did they do that? So they could carry more people and more freight into missions areas. And this is what Alistair Begg said. He said they took out all the stuff that slowed them down. That's a great statement for you and me, all the stuff that slows us down. Because I want to tell you something, friends. Sometimes, as a friend of mine used to say this, good is sometimes best's worst enemy. Now, unless you're still sleeping right now, again, I know it's mid-morning time for your nap. Okay, listen to this again. Good is sometimes best's worst enemy. What does that mean? It means there's good stuff that slows us down. There's good things that can get in the way of doing that which is better or ultimately best. And I think that's critical for us to look at. This could be practices. Maybe it's, and I'm not, I'm not bagging on TV here when I say this because I love TV and I love shows and stuff like this. I love athletics. But it might be you need to spend less time watching TV, less time at the gym. He's like, no, oh, I'm working out. I got to work. Yeah, well, that can become a God too. It can be an inordinate amount of time. It goes beyond health. It could be less time in Bible studies. Well, that sounds heretical, doesn't it? Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you're going from this Bible study to that Bible study, this Bible study, and this, and you don't have time to serve, then you're educated beyond your intelligence or beyond your obedience at least. And, and the purpose of this Bible knowledge is to transform our lives so that we can give back, isn't it? So if we're so involved in church stuff that we can't meet our neighbors, if we're so involved in church stuff that we can't serve God, then it's gotten out of line. Something good is becoming something bad because it's keeping us from that which is better or perhaps best. Need wisdom with all of that. Could be hobbies. I quit playing softball on Saturday nights, not because I didn't have game. I love playing softball. I love being with the guys, but it's because I couldn't play double headers on Saturday night and be ready for Sunday morning. That was more important. Sometimes I hear a lot of guys say, I'd love to play golf, but I can't do it because of the amount of time it takes me away from my family. We have to weigh these priorities in our lives. And by the way, I'm not down on any of these things. All things done in moderation. You got that, right? We're talking about excess in any of these. It could be that our financial commitments need to be simpler. How many times do you hear people say, well, I can't afford to give? Why not? Well, because I'm spending too much money. Well, is there something I can stop spending the money on so I can be in a position to either save or give? We need simplicity in these areas. Sometimes, and this, this again sounds heretical, sometimes friends can be the greatest wind in your sails and sometimes friends can really hold you back. And I don't mean don't be involved with people who are needy. Don't hear that. Because we need to be involved with people who are needy. If Jesus did that, we need to do that. But sometimes there's people in our lives that don't add a lot, don't take a lot away, but they just are nice. And they just always want your time. You have to be able to set boundaries and limits. That's what I mean by things that are good. Here's another thing, though, and the sin which so clings us so closely, the sin that trips us up. And a lot of times people look at a particular sin and most of us are prone towards some type of sin. But I think here he's talking about the lack of the sin of faith. That's the mother. That's the root of all other sin. 
It could be substance abuse. It could be the language that comes out of my mouth. And I'm not just talking about swearing when I say that. Okay, this instrument, this tongue that we have can also be an agent of sin when we gossip. When we repeat things to people that we shouldn't tell them to that aren't a part of the problem, they're not a part of the solution. That's sin. We need to get rid of that type of stuff. Materialism, you know, is another sin that particularly is pervasive within the American culture and church, but it's not just limited to here. Where we think the latest and greatest, literally we begin to adopt, intellectually say, no, the whole say, the one that dies with the most toys wins is bogus, but yet we live that way. And so our actions really uh, belie what our true beliefs are. We don't have to have the latest and greatest as I pull out my flip phone. No. So anyway, the stuff that slows us down, get rid of. So run with endurance by remembering it can be done. By secondly, then getting rid, removing anything that holds us back. And then thirdly, by refocusing our eyes on Jesus' example. How do we run with endurance? By keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. That's the heart, that's the guts of this passage. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And I know that that it says focus on Jesus, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, and I've said refocus your eyes on Jesus. That's intentional, not just because I need three R's for the sermon points. It's because our eyes, if we're understanding this, oftentimes drift, don't they? It's hard to stay focused on Jesus. And so the reality is, how do we refocus our eyes on Jesus consistently? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's saying we need to realize that Jesus is the one. What about him? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know, a lot of times we sort of talk about the cross in very glib and light and trite comments, we wear a cross. I have a friend that that likes to tell people that's wearing a cross, is that declaration or is that decoration? It's a good question. A lot of us treat it as if it's a decoration more than a declaration. Well, what about the cross? The cross was a sign of shame. Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross and probably though sensitivity would keep us from doing this. He was nailed there buck naked without a stitch of clothes on, with not any polite loincloth around him. He was nailed to a cross. He was supposed to be shamed with the stain above him. Here's the king of the Jews with such derision, with such ridicule. As people came by, they spit at him. They mocked him. They said, so you're the king of the Jews? Even the thieves, then bring yourself down from this cross and save yourself if you're the king of the Jews. And by the way, and us. He was shamed. Jesus endured the cross. Nowhere in scripture does one say that we need to enjoy the circumstances of our lives, the difficulties of our lives, because Jesus certainly didn't enjoy the cross. He suffered through the cross. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. And what was the joy? The joy was bringing salvation, paying for your sins and for mine. For those people that heard in the first century, as well as for every man and woman and child since that time that will turn to him in faith. 
for the joy of doing the will of the Father. Friends, a lot of times in running this race that God puts before us, we're going to despise what we're going through. We're going to hate the circumstances. But don't give up. Don't look at those. Stay focused on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And stay focused on the same joy, the same things that gave him joy, doing the will of the Father and knowing that he will use that in the lives of countless others if we will be but faithful. And he will use it in our life as well. You know, I uh, did a funeral. I just was in Israel for two and a half weeks and I got back and two days after I got back, they had held off to do this. I did a funeral for a guy and um, he wrote this letter to his grandkids. I'd love to be able to write this letter to my grandkids. By the way, our first granddaughter was supposed to have been born on Friday. She's still hanging in there. It's okay. So if I get a call, I might jet out of here. Tim said, well, I'd call him. He says, you're not going to tell me you're not coming because your grandbaby's going to be. I says, no, I'm not having the baby, but I might get out of there real fast if it happens. But anyway, this is what he wrote to his grandkids. And I just want you to listen to it. His name is Dick Reynolds. He said, and this is the latter part. He said, dear grandkids, by the time you read or hear this, I'll be in heaven. And it's hard to find words to express how I feel about you. And he talks about how he loves them. And then he says this, learn early in life what's really important and move in that direction. Never compromise in your quest for truth. Keep God and his son Jesus at the center of your life for they are the ultimate reality. Let the promises of God become the ruling authority in your life. Learn to invest in the treasures in heaven where you are while you are here on earth, knowing that someday you will be where I am now. I love you guys. What a great statement. You know, and, and wouldn't you love to be able to write a letter like that to your grandkids someday and know it had integrity, not just wishful thinking? Dick lived it. Another example that I have, and let me just read this passage to you because it's so important. The, the, it, remember, we're writing to Hebrews, but this is not a new thought to them. If you look in Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40, we read these words. <clears throat> Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Those are powerful words, aren't they? Let me tell you, um, there's a young Kenyan, not young, they're a middle-aged Kenyan couple that never had any children, Nicholas and Mary. We met them years ago when they first started coming to Desert Springs and he asked me, he said, well, would you and Mom Emily go out to our anniversary with us, but before we go to dinner, would you pray a prayer of blessing over us? And I said, sure. So, well, what is it you want? And I knew when we met with them, I said, what's the desire of your heart? And they wanted a child. So we prayed. And I'm doing a fast version of this. 
Three months later, I get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night, which is, might be okay in Kenya, but it's not good for me. But by his joy, I knew that God had answered that prayer she was expecting. And so we walked with them through months of joy, celebrating and talking about babies' names and, and baby gifts and showers and all these types of things, anticipation that God is blessing them and opened her womb like he had so many women throughout Scripture. And then I got another phone call, and this was not a happy call. She had gone for a well baby checkup, and the baby was dead. And when I walked through that door with my wife, Emily, we walked in the room, and there's Mary in the bed, and there's Nicholas standing beside her. And through the tears, Mary said these words, God is good all the time. They didn't know if they'd ever be able to have children, but they kept their eyes focused on Jesus. They started taking training to be foster parents. They took in three Native American, three Navajo children to care for them that had special needs. And for several years, they cared for them until the state replaced them with her mother, which was a good thing. But, you know, there's a hole. And God filled that hole with a child of their own. Her name is Sifa, which is Swahili for praise. What a great statement. God is good all the time. And they praised him consistently. Well, what would distract us from focusing on Jesus? I'm going to give you three quick things here. And they all come out of the life of Peter. I know you guys spent a lot of time in the book of Mark. You talked a lot about Peter through that. Well, I'm not going to Mark, okay? But in the other three gospels, the first thing that would distract us from focusing Jesus is focusing on our past failures and adequacies. Uh, when, when Jesus called Peter in Luke chapter five, he had just done a great miracle, a great catch of fish. And then they bowed before him and they saw that what manner of man can do this and they recognized that he was God and Peter's response was good on the one hand he said Lord depart from me for I'm a sinful man we should when we come into the presence of holiness fall recognizing our sinfulness but I think Peter was saying more than that he was saying Lord get away from me you can't do anything with me I'm too damaged I'm too broken I'm too inadequate and Jesus said look you follow me I'll make you into fisher of men Peter believed him and followed. And that's exactly what God did through him, having him see over 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus at one time. There's a guy that I know, Joe. First time I met him, Joe, uh, I wish I could had time to tell you this story because it was a captain of the Phoenix Fire Department, but I didn't know at the time, had a huge drug and alcohol problem was the neighbor of one of our staff members. And I just simply pulled over to the side of the road as I went and say, hey, thanks for being so good to Jim, our staff member, our worship leader, who had a brain tumor and the neighbors were just really loving on him big time. He said, no, you got it wrong. And he came by and he said, you know, he's been so good to us. And so we went on to say, <clears throat> what's well, there, like you, his brother or something? I said, well, yeah, kind of. So when I first met Joe, I'd said, well, you know, I'm at the church with them, and you ought to come sometimes. He laughed. He said, well, you know what, I, I would, but I'm not very religious. And at that, I laughed, and I said, well, that's great. We're not either. And uh, it broke the ice. And a few Sundays later, Jim was, I mean, Joe was in church. And God brought Joe to faith in Jesus and used Joe to start Celebrate Recovery at our church. He's walking in sobriety and doing well. He following Jesus, not focused on his past failures or inadequacies. As a matter of fact, that's what God's using to help him be effective with what he does today. 
We shouldn't focus on our circumstances. In Matthew 14, Peter is with the other disciples in the boat. Tremendous storm has come up. What you don't know unless you read the passages, Jesus had directed them to go out on the Sea of Galilee and left and and stayed on the shore to, to pray. He knew what was going on and he knew what was gonna happen. A tremendous storm comes up. They've been rowing for nine to 10 hours. These are experienced boatsmen, fishermen, oarsmen. They had been struggling. They had been agonizing on the oars. They were concerned that they were gonna die. And they see Jesus walking to them. Now the point of it is Jesus is God. Who else can do the impossible like that? But there was also another lesson in this that Jesus wanted to teach Peter and them about their faith. And Peter blurts out, Lord, if that's you, like who else would it be? Lord, if that's you, command me to walk to you. And Jesus said, okay, come on. Come on, dude. Good, the water's great, come on. Peter does what no other human being's ever done. He gets out and he walks on water to Jesus until the text says this, but seeing the wind. Seeing the effect of the wind, the waves and the crashing and all these things. Well, if his eyes are on the waves and the wind and all this stuff, where are they not? They're not on Jesus, they're on the circumstances. Seeing the wind, he began to sink and he said, Lord, save me. Friends, we need to refocus our eyes by getting them off of our circumstances and onto Jesus. I've already given you examples of a number of people who exactly did that. I wanna give you an understanding of another. Patricia Boyd's a woman in her 30s that saw her body disintegrate. She had diabetes, a heart attack, two strokes, renal failure, blindness, and amputation of both of her legs. But she's in a church in the D.C. area that wanted to start a homeless shelter and nobody else was stepping forward. Patricia Boyd said, I'll do it. So she organized, she raised funds, she did all these types of things. And at the end of one year of successful operation, she had now died. She was, but it had been running successfully for a year and was continuing to. And at her graveside, that's why U.S. Congress people, congressmen and women, and homeless people stand side by side to give tribute to Patricia Boyd. John Ortberg, in his book, Soul Keeping, said this. He quotes her, says, the only thing she had said The only thing I can depend on with my body is that it will fail me. Somehow my body is mine, but it is not me. Hear that. My body is mine, but it is not me. I am not limited by this shell in which I live. Because she did not focus on the circumstances, she was able to do amazing things. Friends, I want to ask you here, you know, one of the things that's really key, and I'm going to have to punt on this last point. I lied. I'm only going to give you two points this morning. Um, When we work on finishing, we see that God does amazing things. You remember I told you that John Stephen Akari is known, whereas even the gold medal winner didn't? Well, here, John Stephen Akari is a, a hero. He was awarded a National Hero Medal of Honor in Kenya in 1983. There was a foundation, John Stephen Akari Athletic Foundation, which supports Tanzanian athletes training for the Olympic Games. He was invited to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia, and he appeared in Beijing as a goodwill ambassador in preparation for the 2008 Games. And even in 2008, he was a torchbearer in Tanzania on April the 13th, carrying the Olympic torch relay through his country. Why? 
It's not about winning, it's about finishing. Are you finishing well? Where are your eyes? Are you able to run with endurance? Partly because where are your eyes? You know, this church is over four years old. It's a remarkable feat. And some of you may have different responses to this today. Some of you may be feeling overworked and feel underappreciated and you want to quit. Don't. Hang in there. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay the course. You might have to make some changes, but stay the course. Some of you may have run the race that God put before you, and frankly, you need a rest right now. You need a break. You need a sabbatical. You need something. That's okay if that's what God is saying. Once you've run a race, you need a season of recovery. So rest. Don't just roll from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. But the purpose of rest is so you can then re-engage. Brad was talking at breakfast this morning about all the different ministry opportunities there are. And so you may be tempted, especially if you're one of those first two groups, you're thinking, oh my gosh, there's so many things that need to be done. I just can't, yeah, I just can't sit back. I got to get involved. I want to tell you some of the reasons why some people burn out in church and others is because there's always a significant number that are basically still on the bench. They're not in the game. And for some of you, I might want to say, your issue is not being overworked. Your issue is you need to get some exercise. You need to use what God has given you to his glory and for the glory of this church. Some of you, stop, being, stop failing to launch, so to speak. Find a place. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Serve with the abilities that he's given to you. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at other people. Don't look at your past. If God's calling you to do something, then do it. And if he's calling you to speak, then speak as it were. The very oracles of God is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4. And if it's to serve, then serve with the strength that God provides. But do it. I got to tell you, I, I love what I see God doing here at, at uh, Phoenix Bible Church. And I love the fact that of being able to be a part of this and uh, I just look forward to seeing how God's going to continue to use you as you run the race with endurance that he's put before you because I know you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for these men and women and even for the younger ones, the children and students that are in a different part of the facility right now and even the little ones that are with them. I just want to pray, Father, for your blessing upon them. Bless the work of their hands. And help them stay focused on Jesus so that they will be able to run with endurance the race that you've put before them. God, I thank you for what you've already done. And I thank you for what you're going to do. For I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.